Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Gray Viking Games. Check them out at grayvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT10 for 10% off. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and this week we're going to talk about drafting blue-green and Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. I guess I should remind everyone that if you are a guru level or above patron on patreon.com slash drafting archetypes, my notes are posted. You can follow along there. So pull that up right now if that's something that uh, appeals to you. As to And now let's just get into it. So blue-green is a below-average archetype. It performs better than blue-white and blue-red, but worse than everything else. It's an archetype that I draft very rarely because there are no cards in the format that individually put me into this archetype. The best performing blue-green card is Volo, whatever his title is, uh, the rare 3-2 that copies your creatures with unique types. It has a 55% game and hand win rate, which is not enough to justify early commitment to a two-color archetype, especially a weak two-color archetype. I do think that, like, you know, if you're drafting, like, I have first picked Volo. I can imagine first picking Volo again. A substantial portion of my first picking Volo is, like, for fun novelty, because it's not a card that I get to play very often. When I do first pick Volo, I expect that I will actually be straight blue-green a minority of the time. More often, I'm going to be splashing either blue or green in a deck that is red or black. That is to say, even the card that is most likely to put me into blue-green in theory doesn't even do that. So that fact by itself makes it somewhat unlikely that I'm blue-green. But that's compounded with the fact that there are almost no commons that put me in blue or green. In fact, the only common in either color that I could see myself frequently first picking is Owlbear. The uh, top performing blue common, Jin Winseer, isn't good enough that I want to first pick it because of how poorly blue does in the format. And so with no blue common that I want to first pick and only a single green common that I want to first pick, it's extremely rare that I get to the point where I want blue and green cards before I'm solidified in another color. And unusually for blue-green, the color combination is actually remarkably bad at splashing. I think white is better at venturing than blue or green, and venturing is a source of treasures. And then red and black make treasures directly. So I don't want to say that blue-green is necessarily the worst pair at splashing, but it is among the worst. Green does have a tiny bit of dedicated fixing, which isn't completely insignificant, but is very, very, like, it, you're basically just looking at you happen on a glade, the uncommon that searches for two lands, which is trivially useful for fixing in the big picture. And then we see this reflected in the numbers on 17 lands, where the best common to splash Dragon's Fire has a really, really bad win rate in blue-green because it's so difficult to splash in the archetype. Between the fact that I usually have cards of another color and I can't splash well if I'm blue-green, which means that if I'm pivoting into blue-green because the colors are available late, I'm, I likely have to give up some number of picks, which in a format that handles splashing as well as this one does, 
I am unlikely to do. I would rather if I have some kind of good blue or green card that's going late, I'm much more likely to be black green or black blue and splash the card than I am to just be blue green. So super, super rare that I personally would end up here. And it's hard for me to imagine approaching the format so differently that you end up here regularly unless you just really like actively want to because you have a fondness for some of the cards or for the archetype. But if you're drafting in any way based on just like cards that do well in general or anything that I would consider like a normal valuation of card strength, it should be very rare that you find yourself at blue green. It's basically difficult for me to imagine it happening, barring just like a string of, or well, short sequence of rare and premium uncommons, of which there still aren't even that many in blue and green, putting you into that archetype. We're talking about like, you have to open a blue rare and then get past a premium like green card, basically with nothing in between those two events happening as the most likely way to end up in blue-green. So that said, that should mean that most of the time you're in blue-green, you have some premium cards, which should inform something about how you think about these blue-green decks that you're drafting, just in terms of what I talk about so frequently about how much more acceptable it is to play a long game as a function of how many powerful uh, cards you have that can kind of like carry a game by themselves if you draw them late. Like if you assume that a substantial portion of the time that you're blue-green is because you have some bombs that you're drawing toward, that would indicate that you're more likely to want to play kind of like a slower, more defensive game to the point where you're going to like find those cards and like then be able to cast them and have them take over the game. I guess that means that by default, because of the expectation that you're only in this if you have bombs, it's less important that you are aggressive. It is still the case that if for some reason you were to find yourself here without bombs, like if I had to build a blue-green deck out of all commons, I would probably build an aggressive deck. I would focus on like early Null Hunters with Bar the Gate and Sign of Stygia to play kind of like a tempo aggro game. That's certainly not what I'm hoping to do with Blue-Green, nor is it what I expect to do with Blue-Green, because I, I don't think that I'm going to be building a Blue-Green deck out of commons. I'll just draft different colors while I'm seeing our commons. And then the Blue and Green cards do lend themselves well to playing this like defensive game with late game power. You can both rely on the rares that you draft as well as like expensive commons that perform well in the archetype. So the, the top four performing cards in blue and green at, at common are Owlbear, Jin Windseer, and then Ercult Elemental and Her Hilgiant Herdgorger. Ercult Elemental and Her Hilgiant Herdgorger, both being six drops, means that you don't really want to prioritize those when you're drafting, but it suggests that you're very likely to want to play most of the ones that you end up with, and you're naturally going to have a lot of power in the late game because that's just where a lot of your card quality is. And so while you're building toward hoping to draw your rares and win with those, you incidentally have commons that are pretty good in that strategy. What I think this means is that you should spend most of the draft prioritizing cards that are good in your opening hand and hope that the natural direction of blue and green cards combined with the power of your bombs and the fact 
that the cards are designed structurally to support this like mana sink plan should naturally lead to a pretty good long game anytime you end up in kind of like a board stall. So what you want to like, basically I recommend approaching the stats and your thinking kind of as if you're drafting an aggro deck where what you care about is how good cards are at the beginning of the game. Not because you're trying to win the early game, but because whether or not you win a game is going to be based on you not losing an early game. And so you still need to prioritize those premium two drops as much as an aggressive deck would, because so much of the fail state of your deck is losing two aggressive decks in those early games. And you want to make sure that your opening hand is going to like lead to a state where you're going toe-to-toe with them, getting into some kind of board stall, and then you have the better late game which again should happen kind of just incidentally rather than you needing to really prioritize it, especially with your picks early in the draft. Spend the early picks fighting over premium cheap cards. And then with the later picks, when there aren't really like good cheap cards, you'll take the expensive cards that are strong in your deck and you'll play them, but you won't need to spend picks on them. So that's kind of like philosophically how you should be approaching things and where your priorities while drafting should be. The next thing I want to touch on is interaction, which this deck really wants to prioritize. Because you're playing cards that are independently strong, uh, like Elbear, Eltigard Ranger, Hill Giant, Herdgorger, Air Cult Elemental, it's almost impossible not to play some of those because there just aren't enough good cards, and those cards are good. So you end up with them in your deck no matter what you're trying to do. Because you have those individually powerful cards, what you want your other cards to do is trade a lot of the time. You're not a synergy deck. You're basically like if when we talk about like big games versus small games, individually strong cards want to exist in small games where they're going to like, you know, dominate other games rather than uh, games where they're going to be kind of like beaten by synergies or a single large creature will be held off by two small creatures. Uh, So you want a small game But blue and green don't naturally lend themselves to that. Both colors are generally good at adding cards to the game. Blue draws cards. Green has a lot more creatures than removal. Also, green draws cards, stuff like Owlbear. So they lend themselves to playing a big game, but you're going to be more favored in a small game, which means that when possible, you want to really prioritize one-for-one type cards. What this means is that uh, a lot of your premium commons are cards like Spoils, The Hunt, Bar the Gate, and as much as I hate to admit it, Charm Sleep. I do think Charm Sleep is weaker than the other clean removal at common, like Bar the Gate and Spoils the Hunt, but you want removal so much in this archetype that I do think it's worth playing and looking over like the recent trophy decks on 17 lands that were blue-green, almost all of them did play Charm Sleep. As much as I think Charm Sleep has serious liabilities in the format, it's structurally so much what uh, Blue Green wants to be doing that uh, it ends up working out to be an acceptable card to play in this kind of deck. Another card that is kind of like exceptionally applicable in a way that it might not at first appear to be is Lurking Roper. Blue Green's not great at gaining life and Lurking Roper is like pretty bad in, for example, Red Green where you're not good at untapping it. But in Blue Green, 
because of what I'm saying about how you're like naturally advantaged in a long game and want to focus on not losing early, you're pretty happy to just have a 5-4 defender or 4-5 defender for three mana to make sure that you get the late game. But then you can also play cards that gain life. And there's also Clever Conjurer as another way to untap Lurking Roper. Just a card to watch for where normally Lurking Roper is good with life gain. Here, Lurking Roper is so good at doing what Blue-Green wants to do when it itself isn't working well at what it wants to do, which is bashing and gaining life and having vigilance. The like fail state of Lurking Roper where it has to just kind of hang out is still good enough in Blue-Green uh, that you want to prioritize the card. While we're on the subject of cards that I generally don't like that overperform in blue-green, I want to take quick note of Split the Party, which has an extremely small rate of play on 17 lands, so the sample size is really small, but its win rate is remarkably high. In blue-green specifically, it's not a card that does well overall, and it's a card that I think is atrocious. It reads as a card that would, if it is good ever, be good in blue-green because it does very clearly want a large battlefield. Like when I was talking about how blue-green generally would prefer to play a small game, but naturally has cards that lend itself to playing a big game. All of that is exactly what's going on with Split the Party. It wants a big game, blue-green ends up playing a big game, and then it kind of like momentarily gives your opponent... Well, I mean, it, it just... It's really good if you have a bunch of power and you don't find all the removal that I'm saying you want to play. Basically, I think Split the Party is not good in every blue-green deck, but it's good when you fail to find enough one-for-ones, which you should be looking for, but when you don't see them, you should be able to use Split the Party instead. I will admit that my personal experience was I expected that to be true early on and drafted a blue-green deck where I played Split the Party and it was absolutely atrocious for me. But uh, I think that, you know, that might have been its own small sample size issue. And it also might be that my deck wasn't aggressive enough. It's not hard for me to believe that there is like exactly the right blue-green deck that you can have where Split the Party is good. But despite its win rate, I would still advise generally not to play it in blue-green. And just to note that it's played very rarely. So you should assume it's only played when it's at its absolute best. And in those spots, it manages an above average, but not incredible win rate. So I would say you may use Split the Party with caution. Another card that I think is really worth talking about in blue-green uh, for fairly obvious reasons is Gretchen Tichwillow, the like signpost blue-green uncommon, the most played card in blue-green, obviously, because it's you know generally going to make the cut blue-green and other people aren't fighting you for it. Gretchen Tichuelo is one of many mana sinks in the format, which means like because there's a lot of there are a lot of other mana sinks, it might not be as high a priority. Also, it's a pretty fast format that doesn't really ask you to have mana sinks very often. However, Gretchen Tichuelo is unique among mana sinks in that you can activate it at instant speed, where most of the mana sinks in the format are things that venture that you can only do at sorcery speed. Gretchen allows you to profitably spend your mana at the end of your opponent's turn, which is really rare and lends itself really well to playing with other instants, 
where you can hold up your mana and have a mana sink. So Gretchen Titchwell is a great way to use cards like Bar the Gate, Spoils the Hunt, Sign of Stygia. Less so Sign of Stygia, just because you kind of know when you're going to want to cast that and when you're not on your turn. Basically, like Bar the Gate is a pretty strong card when you can use it well, but it can be a little bit hard to use because it's there aren't really that many instants or productive ways to spend your mana at the end of the opponent's turn. And so the opponent can just kind of, like, if they're, like, ahead or at parity and you leave up mana for bar the gate, it's not that uncommon that your opponent can sniff it out and not play into it if they're happy to have you not spend your mana and them not spend their mana. But if you have a mana sink, now your opponent can't really afford not to play into it. And Gretchen is the mana sink that lets you do that. So... I think Bar the Gate, uh, which is incidentally among like one of the top five performing commons in blue-green, I think pretty underrated uh, as far as like removal spell goes. Like I think that it's probably not viewed as being better than Charmed Sleep, despite the fact that it is. I didn't think to check the like average taken at on those two cards to verify that. But suffice to say, I think Bar the Gate's a lot better than Charmed Sleep, especially if you can you know, strategically support it with other instants, Gretchen makes it much easier to do that. So I I think that, like, if you have Gretchen specifically in your blue-green deck, which is reasonably likely, then you should try to lean into, like, being able to do other things at instant speed and to take advantage of the instant mana sync that Gretchen offers. I guess I might as well keep going down uh, some noteworthy uncommons. Wizard class is a card that generally performs pretty poorly. The set doesn't lend itself well to four mana divinations, as we see with Contact Other Planes having pretty bad stats. Classes, I guess, in addition to the venture things, are another example of sorcery speed mana sinks. So wizard class is generally pretty bad. Wizard class does perform well in blue-green. Not amazingly, but good enough that you should generally expect to put it in your deck. And that's due to a combination of green being relatively good at like giving you blockers and offering time to use wizard class, as well as blue green kind of like, you know, with cards like Underdark Basilisk and the generally like higher toughness than power that you have, also just cards like Owlbear that come down at a time when they're not likely to be great at attacking because it's pretty easy for the opponent to double block, but they're going to make it hard for the opponent to attack you. Uh, green lends itself really, really well to like board stalls. And blue-green as a color combination generally seeks to avoid that with uh, blues flyers, but blues flyers aren't particularly strong or plentiful or aggressive in this format. Like where you might have a card like Welkin Turn as kind of the cheap blue common flyer. Here there's Pixie Guide, which is not a very strong card and certainly not a great attacker. Which means that you're not great at ending the game, which means you're more likely to like get into a board stall. Uh, which means that Jin Windseeker Seer, part of why it's so good, is you get into this board stall where Jin Windseer is like clocking your opponent while you're hanging out. But if you don't have Genwin Seer, if your opponent has an answer, if they have their own flyers or reach creatures or whatever, it's reasonably likely that you just find yourself in a board stall with blue-green, which is kind of what's designed to happen. Blue-green is like constructed to be about these mana sinks. So the idea is 
you're supposed to get into a board stall and then have a mana sink to lead to overwhelming your opponent. And wizard class is a good way to overwhelm your opponent with this, like the incremental value that you're getting from chapter three of wizard class, where you, as you draw cards, your creatures get bigger and then they become more likely to be able to attack. And so like, you're just, you're getting more value out of all your draws and talents you break through in decks that are often looking for that. Another uncommon I want to call it specifically is purple worm. And I basically just want to say it's bad. Um, in general, I think it's like a little overrated. And I think blue green is particularly bad at forcing a trade on your turn to allow you to play it cheap. And it's just so expensive that you often like it's pretty likely to get stuck in your hand, you would just be much better served by having any of the other like medium top end, like Owlbear, Elderguard Ranger, Hill Giant Herdgorger, or Cult Elemental, instead of putting Purple Worm in your deck. It's just too clunky and hard to work with, not enough payoff. Uh, and like we see it having a very, very low win rate and being slightly overplayed. So I think it's worth calling out. So th those are the like uncommons of note in terms of doing something exceptional for the archetype where they perform relevantly better or worse than they do in other spots as far as just like top uncommons to look for hunter's mark is top top hunter's mark is like weirdly better in my experience than spoils the hunt like it's certainly you know it's an uncommon as opposed to a common so it kind of naturally makes you suspect it's a better card but then you read it and it's like, okay, so is it worth one extra mana to get plus one, plus one until end of turn? And the answer in my experience has been extremely worth it. Like even ignoring the discount against blue, which is really big whenever it comes up, getting plus one, plus one on an instant speed spell that damages your opponent's creature without them damaging you back. Like normally pump being attached to fight spells is pretty big because it lets your creatures kill bigger creatures, which is important because often creature players have creatures that are about the same size. But I've found it just super common that I can two for one my opponent with Hunter's Mark. Like close to half the time plus, I want to say, I end up just like relatively effortlessly engineering a combat where I can like attack my opponent blocks with a creature that they think is going to trade. Hunter's Mark doesn't trade and kills another one of their creatures. And I get a two for one. Sometimes you even get a three for one where you like attack in such a way that your opponent like makes some multi blocks and you get to like kind of mess everything up by like pumping one creature and killing a creature that's involved in like a pair of blockers somewhere else. Like it, it can just lead to some really incredible blowouts over and above what Spoils the Hunt is doing in a way that like just lines up kind of better than you expect it to most of the time. Next up, Intrepid Outlander. Obviously, I was talking about how you want to, you know, prioritize good early game, and this is just like a great defensive card. Obviously, it's just everything you would expect to be good in this archetype. Lurking Roper, I already talked about, and then Eccentric Apprentice. This is basically just, you know, I mentioned that there aren't actually that many good flying creatures and they're not very aggressive. This is kind of just like the way to have an early evasive creature in blue-green that also gives you a little bit of value up front. It's strong just because of this idea that, I mean, well, the venture value, like it's 2-3 two, flyer for three is a card, or 2-2 two, two flyer for three is a card 
that I'm kind of routinely down on relative to other people. But if you give me like any ETB with it, I'm much more in. Like getting value up front does a lot to like mitigate the fact that as a three mana two two, you expect that your opponent is often going to be able to trade with it for a similar amount of mana or a similar amount of mana while they're getting value or spend less mana to answer it. But now that you've got some value out of it, you're more even with your opponent when they have an answer. And then when they don't have an answer, you can, you know, hit your opponent for two while you're in this board stall. I think almost none of eccentrics eccentric apprentices strength in general is coming from its kind of like bonus if you completed a dungeon text i think you should basically just be viewing it as 2-2 flyer etb venture and that is something that you're looking for in this archetype just going down the game and hand win rate of uncommons split the party i talked about ray of frost i didn't talk about but i talked about charm sleep and it's ray of frost is basically just a better version in that like the discount matters more than the additional ability of charm sleep prosperous innkeeper makes total sense that that's good you're just looking to stay alive gretchen titchville i already talked about displacer beast similar situation to eccentric apprentice except obviously it doesn't have evasion but it you know trades and gets value up front and then it's kind of a mana sink eventually sometimes blue dragon and wandering troubadour are the last two that i considered kind of like noteworthy in terms of being not even like exceptional, but just these are like the solid uncommons. Blue Dragon is not a priority, again, just because you want to be prioritizing early game, but among random expensive finishers, it's a pretty good one. I think that basically sums everything up. I guess the last notes that I would make are about the blue cheap modal instance. You come to a river and you see a guard approach. Both of those are cards that I don't play very frequently, but I expect both of them to perform better in blue-green than in any other deck, I think. Again, large green creatures are likely to lead to your opponent making double blocks, where it's really powerful to be able to banish one of their blockers. And then also sometimes you're just, you know, on the back foot or whatever it's like bounce is typically pretty good in blue green across limited in general you come to reverse the common bounce spell and then you see a guard approach very similar situation because you have large creatures they're more likely to be worth protecting also because you have like a bunch of card advantage and expensive stuff of one mana tempo play it's going to be relatively important and impactful so it can be a convenient way to kind of like mitigate the Issues that you might have with your deck being clunky to like cut an expensive card for you see a guard approach when you're trying to find a way to like lower your curve. You didn't find enough two drops or something. I guess also shout out to Circle of the Moon Druid for being a great blocker in this format. Four toughness is really big. Means that it doesn't die to Dragon's Fire most of the time right away. Blocks like Hobgoblins even when they have their Hack Tactics bonus. Also, there's obviously the, like, you can take advantage of the Null Hunter into Circle of the Moon Druid curve that's kind of the, like, green nut draw. And I think that it's notable that Circle of the Moon Druid performs a lot better than, like, Clever Conjurer, despite the fact that Clever Conjurer seems like it's pretty well set up in blue-green because of both the like lurking roper synergy that I discussed, as well as just ramping to these powerful and impactful uh, five and six mana commons. All of that seems pretty good, but at the end of the day, the fourth toughness seems to just matter more. Um, I guess it is not exactly accurate that Circle of the Moondred is great at living through Dragon's Fire, obviously, because they can kill it on your turn, but 
regardless, the, the blocking stuff is real. The it attacks well. It it's good at playing both the like you know turtle up game as well as kind of the like you know null hunter sign of Stygia tempo aggro game. Whereas like clever counter, you know it's gonna kind of like give you a bump on turn four where it lets you like cast something ahead of time, but it's not a good attacker. It's not a good blocker. It doesn't capitalize on anything except like certain draws where your curve is just like that into a big thing or that into two big things. Uh, Circle of the Moon Druid, just like good, really good, like nuts and bolts, uh, blue, green, common. And with that, I think I'm going to turn it over to Twitch chat for any questions they feel I haven't covered. Chat, if you have any questions that are outstanding, please post them in chat and I'll get to them. While uh, people do that, I want to thank my new patrons for the week, Maddie, Kevin, and Anthony. Thank you so much for the support. Anyone else who is finding value from these lectures or interested in um, the additional content offered by our Patreon, is encouraged to check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes if they're supporting the program and on to questions. So the first question is kind of about blue-green in limited in general and how important splashing often is and like whether I think that blue-green is more viable when it's easier to splash. And I would say obviously like yes, clearly in that, you know, more optionality is better than less optionality. Like being able to splash kind of seems strictly like you know, better than not being able to splash. Though, obviously, you know, that's not exactly accurate. Obviously, like, the ability to splash is coming at a cost of something else. Like, even if it's just, oh, well, there are blue and green commons in the format to let me splash. Well, those exist instead of some other commons. But as far as, like, why structurally it's so important to be able to splash in blue-green, that kind of gets back to what I was talking about, about how, like, the card draw from blue and the large creatures from green in general, both of those things really want you to be able to like make to efficiently trade resources with your opponent to magnify the effect the effectiveness of those things. And usually, blue green does that by splashing removal spells and interaction from other colors. Now, in this format, one could argue that we have an above average amount of interaction in blue and green such that we don't need to splash other colors to get it but one could reply to that argument with well yeah there is removal but it's still not as strong as the removal in like red and black and so like it would just be better to be able to splash that efficient removal than to like have to rely on the kind of like finicky nature of blue and green removal if this is to be read as just like a question about like, hey, is the reason that blue green is weak in this format that it's not good at splashing and blue and green structurally needs to be able to splash? I would say there's certainly merit to thinking about it that way because of the importance of mechanics that are generally reserved for other colors. Not having access to that does kind of like exacerbate the natural shortcomings of blue and green with regard to like, you know, good hard removal. Next question, is it incorrect to see this archetype as a ramp deck, like other formats, um, such as how it was in Strixhaven? Yes, I would say that it is incorrect to see this as a ramp deck. The ramp 
options that exist are Neverwinter Druid, like you find a path or whatever. The whatever the um, enchant land that ventures and makes it tap for two mana is, and Clever Conjurer. Basically, the green ramp is, ex- and then I guess there's also Dungeon Map. But the green ramp is just exceptionally weak. Spending your mana on turn one and turn two to find a forest not to fix with Neverwinter Druid and like an enchant land that doesn't fix and costs three mana. It's just the cards that ramp you aren't strong enough, even if like there are things to ramp to. And then also, because the format's pretty aggressive, decks really punish you for spending the time ramping rather than playing defensive cards. And then obviously like you're looking to play a long game and ramp cards are pretty bad to draw late. So I I think the like card file just like doesn't support ramp as a viable strategy just because the ramp cards aren't good enough to carry their own weight. (laughs) Next question. How many bar the gates is preferred? I can't say that I have a large enough sample size to have any idea what the answer is. And this is also largely a question of like how many other instants you have and how many two drops you have and how you know good of a bar of the gates deck are you. Like if you are going to be tapping out a lot on turn three, on turn like three, four, or five, six, bar of the gates not going to be great. Especially if you don't have two drops, there will be times when you know you want one to zero bar of the gates because you just don't use it very well. But maybe you still want it to like answer bombs sometimes if you get lucky or whatever. But then there are other decks where like you have like a lot of good two drops, you know, Intrepid Outlanders and Underdark Basilisks that are going to like hold off the opponent's early game and or like clock your opponent while you hold up mana. And then you also have like, you know, Gretchen is a mana sink and some Stein of Stygias or if you're, you know, lucky, some Dragon Turtles. And, you know, then maybe you want like six or seven or whatever number of bar the gates you can get because you're happy to just like play the entire game at your in your opponent's end step and or like then get to five mana and like tap two on your turn and pass with part of the gate up or something. Next question, how would you suggest the blue-green player position themselves versus red-black decks in AFR? I think that it's, you know, definitely worth asking about beating red-black specifically since it's so commonly played and obviously price of loyalty is significant when thinking about playing creatures like Hill Giant Herdgorger. So obviously you want to prioritize the early game, you know, a lot of the stuff that I said about the stuff that's important is informed by the context of the popularity of uh, red, black, and how I talked about how you want to focus on your early game so that you on your like early plays so you don't lose in the early game. So prioritizing, you know, just any two drop as well as circle the moon druid specifically, and cards like you come to a river and you see a guard approach that both allow you to like not get totally destroyed by price of loyalty. Wild shape, I guess, is another way to do it. So basically, like, you know, you primarily want to prioritize thinking about your life total early and having early blockers and make sure that you're at a high enough life total that you can afford to, you know, play a big creature. And then if they have a removal spell or worse, a price of loyalty that you're not just dead. Elder Guard Ranger is also pretty good against red black. Any kind of like value stuff like that, like they're so good at having one for ones that uh, kind of just like cards that they have to like that are built in two for ones are pretty good at them. Uh, like basically, you know, I was saying that blue green 
naturally leads to a large game, but has a lot of games that are good in a small game. The good news for you is that red-black leads to a small game. So if you can manage to get to a spot where your big creatures aren't a liability, then you're going to be in you know the place that you were hoping to end up, where you know a bunch of stuff have, has traded down and you have like the last thing standing because you played an owl bear and that meant that you're up a card, or you know they ran out of removal and then you played a hill giant herd gorger. Maybe they're staring at a dragon slayer or something. So I, I think really you know the absolute crux of it, if you had to focus on a single thing, is just don't fall behind. Next question. Leading question, but why does Volos feel so underwhelming when it reads as being quite powerful? It's a four mana creature with two toughness. Uh, we say, see the same thing with Delina's stats, where Delina, I believe I have the name right, the Wild Mage, the red four mana three two that copies creatures when it attacks, that can, you know, win a game out of nowhere at any time if you just high roll a few times. Despite that card having a lot of power and a lot of flashy wins, its win rate overall is pretty low. And I think that's just because four mana, two toughness creatures are uh, not great. There are a lot of ways to kill them in a way where you're down mana and possibly other value also. And I, I think that's basically the whole story. I mean, so Volo is both easily answered and then trades down when it's answered, but is also a bad top deck. Like, it's good when you curve out with it and your opponent doesn't answer. It can win a game really, really easily if your opponent doesn't answer it for, you know, sometimes even one turn, certainly two or three turns of you playing and copying creatures, like you're winning that game. But it's so likely that your opponent just kills it or you've played a long game and you just draw it late and now you drew a 3-2 that's just not very impactful until you like then top deck another creature afterward, and that still needs to be a creature that's not the same type as any other. Like it's just it's good in your opening hand, but really kind of drops off a cliff late in a game. But in your opening hand is when your opponent's most likely to have a removal spell that they haven't spent yet and to be able to kill it. So you need to like thread this needle where your opponent like either didn't draw or has already used their removal spell, but it's like you know, not so late that you've already played your other creatures, and that's just kind of a narrow window. Next question. When you say you'll draft blue-green today, if it's convenient, what is the probability that it's convenient? Not high. <laughs> that question references um, yesterday. I was hoping to get some reps in with blue-green to, um, you know, build more data fresh in my mind to talk about. But as I mentioned there are so many like natural forces in the way that I think it's reasonable to draft that it's really hard to end up in blue green. So the question about, you know, like what would have to happen for me to feel like it's convenient to go into blue green? I, I you know, if you're trying, if you say this draft, I want to do it, you're so overwhelmingly likely to have to just like give up a lot of early equity to position yourself there that I think it's an extremely inconvenient deck on average to force. Next, maybe question further on Volo is Volo's stats don't seem that bad. Uh, yeah, I mean, we were coming from the starting point, point of, you know, Volo is a strong playable card. And then I was just explaining why it's not as strong as one might think if they expect it to be stronger. I, I wasn't arguing 
that like you shouldn't play Volo. My position on Volo, as stated at the very beginning of this podcast, which I suspect many in Twitch weren't here for, is that it's you know a playable card. It's a reward for being blue-green, but it's not a card that you should first pick. And if you do first pick it, you shouldn't force blue-green based on that. You should accept, expect to splash it. But again, it's almost it's very, very rare that it would be the strongest card in a pack. Oh, uh, also, there is a question about power of persuasion. I think power of persuasion is just awful. I don't know if, like, I, I haven't noticed it as having a reasonable win rate. Nothing about the card reads desirable to me. I, I don't know why I would ever want to put it in a deck. Okay, so this question is about two drops. Like I mentioned that you want to prioritize the early game. So the question is about blue two drops and how none of them are very good. So that means that you would presumably want to prioritize the green two drops, which means that, you know, your early game is going to be uh, green. Broadly, I would just say, yep, that's true. It's not that bad if you have to play the blue two one that you can spend six mana and draw a card, but you would definitely rather have null hunters and underdark basilisks. Some versions of the deck might be able to get away with playing a secret door if you're low on uh, early plays. But yeah, you're really looking for Underdark Basilisk, Null Hunter, and Intrepid Outlander. All of those should be prioritized extremely highly. And also, yes, in general, you should expect that your early plays are going to be green and most of your deck is going to be green uh, because green is just a substantially stronger color than blue in the format, which, you know, if you end up in a spot where you're going far enough that way is a reasonable, you know, strike against uh, Charm Sleep, for example, as being double blue. But, you know, I think in general, your mana is going to be like nine forests, eight islands, and it's not bad to play Charm Sleep because you don't want to cast it super early anyway. Chat points out Gretchen Titchwillow is obviously another uh, two drop that you're definitely looking to play, uh, which does happen to be both blue and green. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to wrap it there. So thanks everyone for your questions and for, well, for those of you who are not uh, asking questions or not even uh, present right now, thanks for uh, tuning in and I'm honored that you uh, value my thoughts on these things. And I will be back next week. See you then. Thank you. And goodbye.